You are listening to Marquette University's COVID Convos podcast. In each episode, representatives from Marquette's STEM and humanities communities will bring you insights into the pandemic that you may be missing. Marquette University is located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The traditional lands of Potawatomi, Ho-Chunk, and Menominee peoples along the southwest shores of Michigami, North America's largest system of freshwater lakes, where the Milwaukee, Menominee, and Kinnikinnick rivers meet and the people of Wisconsin's sovereign Anishabe, Ho-Chunk, Menominee, Oneida, and Mohican nations remain present. Welcome to another episode of COVID Conversations. I'm Samina Mola. I'm an anthropologist in the Department of Social and Cultural Sciences. And today's episode is about the topic of public health in response to COVID-19 and pandemics. Now, I'm joined today by two colleagues here at Marquette, Joshua Knox and Joseph Bionanebie. And I'm gonna ask them both to introduce themselves, starting with Joseph. Hi. Everyone, I'm Dr. Joseph Bionanebie, a clinical assistant professor of public health and global health in the College of Health Sciences at Marquette University. I teach epidemiology, which explore, uh, explores the study and then analysis of distribution patterns and determinants of health and disease conditions uh, in defined populations. But I also teach global health, which focuses on situations that happen worldwide. I'm happy to be part of this podcast to discuss with you all. Thank you, Joseph. And Josh, can you introduce yourself as well? Yes, thank you for, uh, for inviting me, Samina. So I'm, I'm Josh Knox. I'm a clinical associate professor, uh, also in the College of Health Sciences. I teach specifically in the PA program, in the physician assistant pro, uh, graduate program here at Marquette. I teach a survey of public health class or co-teach a, a class for PA students. So teach, I'm a guest lecturer for several topics in the public health class for uh, undergraduates in BISC. Work with Joseph and, and Samina and many others on helping to get the public health minor here started at, at Marquette. and spend a lot of my time doing community health at the community level here at, in, uh, in Milwaukee, but also uh, abroad with Global Health and Global Brigades and some other organizations. Thank you both for joining me today. You know, I've been lucky enough to work with Joseph and Josh because I am also trained as a medical anthropologist. And one of the general tensions in social sciences broadly is always about the relationship of individuals to communities or larger cultural forces and larger cultural groups. And I thought I would ask a question that probably sounds really basic to the two of you, but I think it's still worth asking. And that question is, you know, why do we need a public health response to COVID-19 and other infectious diseases? And why isn't it enough just to, to tell people individually how, you know, what the rules are and how to reduce risk and avoid infection? Why doesn't that work? And I'm gonna suggest that we start with Joseph, right, as our, our public health professional here. Yeah, thank you, Samina. Public health promotes and protects health of people and their communities, uh, where they live, 
where they work and play. Public health also tries to prevent uh, people from getting sick or injured through organized efforts. So in the public health, we do so much in tracking diseases, we conduct research, we prepare, predict and respond to diseases, but also suggest community, uh, state and national um, solutions in terms of what could be affecting anyone, anywhere. And you know that COVID-19 is a new disease and public health response has been learning in many uh, other ways. So you ask the question about, um, if you want to repeat it for me, like why doesn't it work if we focus on one person? So public health uh, is a collective effort. Everyone is at risk of COVID-19 if they are exposed to the virus. But of course, we know that the most susceptible populations could be affected more, you know, those who are above the age of 65 or if they are immunocompromised for some reason. But we also know that no man is an island. Individuals are connected to their communities and to the global world. So disease could spread between individuals as well as to other people in their communities. So this is what public health requires. Public health requires individual as well as collective efforts. In public health, first of all, when there is an issue or a disease challenge, we make collective goals with the hope that we could achieve them and ensure that everyone is free from disease. For example, even as we search for the vaccine for COVID-19, if a large number of people avoid vaccination, however much we strategize, there won't be insufficient herd immunity. Still, what I mean, the disease will be able to pass on from some individuals and many people may be affected. The other idea that I would think of why we have to care, not just as individuals, but as communities of people, is that public health often uses public goods. For example, we utilize hospitals, we follow public guidelines and regulations. In a way, public goods are created and maintained as a result of concerted action. How effectively and efficiently we are using these limited resources matters a lot in the prevention of COVID-19. We should not be selfish enough to exploit the testing and treatment without being considerate of high-risk groups, for example. Else, we know that what goes around comes around. Our work should be sustainable for today and for tomorrow. Think of this situation. Does it matter if I'm safe and my neighbor is not safe from COVID-19? Think of a young college student who believes that his body is strong enough to overcome COVID-19. If he is careless and gets infected, even if he does not become ill, he may still infect people who are close to him or her, such as parents. Those parents in such a risk group may become ill and he may lose them. Parental loss would affect not only other people, but the college student, his academic performance, his economic situation, 
we know that most of the students, their tuition comes from the support of parents. And therefore, we would say that disease is associated not only with the physical the being of being healthy, but also involves social, economic, and well-being. We should have solidarity between individuals, friends, and family, communities, states, and national governments, and generally the global world. There is this common phrase, if you want to walk fast, you may walk alone, but if you want to walk far, you should walk together. That's really poignant. Josh, can I ask you to answer the same question, right? You know, Joseph has laid out the argument for why we need public health, but why doesn't it work just to tell individuals what to do? Yeah, thanks, Samina. The I think a few things. Maybe I'd revisit college students as as an example and, and Joseph touched on that. So so we're here in this pandemic and, and people go to college and they, they do so not just for their, their education and their betterment, right? But to to have a community, for instance, and they're seeking social connections, becoming independent from their parents and 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 their native community and, and exploring their identity. And a big part of that oftentimes is is risk-taking behavior oftentimes. So it's really tough for me back here. I don't want to make any judgments about whether we should, we should be back in or not, but we're putting students in a, in a difficult situation. Many of the behaviors, right, are, are more manifest, social interactions, binge drinking, unprotected sexual encounters, lower preventive measure seatbelt use, riding with your car, all those sort of things. And we have a situation here with college students across the nation where we're using, you know, fear as a as a motivator for the individuals. And we, we know that doesn't work very well. You know, you only have to look to, you know, back to the Reagan administration, for instance, for anti-drug campaigns, for campaigns against dream pregnancy that have relied on fear and those really haven't worked out well overall further i think the student population you know is they're particularly susceptible along with the elderly to loneliness to depression to anxiety to suicidal thoughts and and here we are saying oh we have to go back to school but the only thing you can do is the school but we'll probably still do some of it on video and you you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do the the other things so we're sort of trying to disconnect, feeding off of what Joseph said, we're trying to pull all that out and pretend like this is all about their individual behaviors, but really as a population, and they're just one population, but college students are, are, are more than their individual identities. They belong to a community and they, it's, it's, their risks are layered like a lot of other populations. I really appreciate how you laid that out. And, you know, in some ways, I think about it as a public health approach, kind of evacuating some of the moral and sort of judgment values that do go into kind of sorting people into 
you know, good individuals who subscribe to the rules versus bad and just taking a kind of a scientific and sanguine approach, right? Like developmental psychologists know a lot about adolescents, right? And young adults and their behavior, as you said, and not assuming that college students during a pandemic will behave all that differently than they would not during a pandemic, right? And and sort of evacuating some of that judgment and then making decisions as public health professionals at a more structural level where we just sort of decide that we're, we're, we are going to systematically make decisions that reduce the risk instead of depending on individuals who may or may not comply with those orders. And that, of course, is not everything that public health is, but it, it's a tiny piece of it. And I think it's really important because it's a more effective and realistic research-based approach to, to fighting disease and you know, a number of other issues related to, to wellness. So I appreciate thinking about that with the two of you. You know, I keep hearing, and we talked about that in the, the politics episode as well, that you know, this is a situation unlike any other, and it's revealing all kinds of things. But I wonder, from your perspectives, if it's worth thinking about what lessons there are in past pandemics that might instruct us, right, and public health approaches from past pandemics, or even to think about the way other countries or polities have responded to this pandemic. Are there any public health lessons that we can learn from those other contexts? First of all, let me take a step a little bit back. I know in public health we institute policies and guidelines, but it is important for us to be community-centered. In the hospitals, we may be patient-centered, but in public health, we need to find out, for example, what are the interests of these college students, you know, before we guide them on what to do. Unfortunately, pandemics like these ones are so fast. They move at a speed that within 14 hours, disease may move from uh, China to the US. And so it doesn't give us enough time to engage our students, our participants, and our communities. So that's important to recap that public health considers what community members uh, want to have, whether it is moral, whether it's acceptable, or whether it works for them. Talking of the past pandemics, I haven't been engaged in a, quite a number of those pandemics, but we know pandemics have happened centuries before, like the Black Death, which killed very many people. But I have participated in epidemics you know, I was on the National Task Force for Ebola outbreak, and very few people died out of the Ebola outbreak. I think even before we talk of the lessons we learn, uh, countries, societies, and institutions should be able to learn and believe that we are in a learning phase. This was a new pandemic where no one knew uh, about the pandemic more than the other person. Instead, we needed to learn from each other. In most of the pandemics, there should be uh, co-learning. We should learn from each other. Uh, many people had never heard of uh, what social distancing means. 
But all these ideas show that there is an importance of keeping record of the information, how past pandemics uh, were controlled or were mitigated. And then we utilize that information to control such uh, pandemics. The other important one is that from the epidemics that I've seen, especially uh, in Africa, like Ebola, there has to be what we call uh, cooperation. We have to work together as teams. I always wonder uh, if this disease had started from low-income countries in Africa, would we have responded the way we responded? And would those, would those countries would have would those countries respond the way they responded in the low-income category? There are issues of power dynamics. Quite often in the Western world, we may think that we have more power. Yes, it's true. We may have more power, but we also need to learn from those countries which may be seen as having less power, but more experience with the disease. So I think importantly is to learn from each other, regardless of where we are located geographically. So Joseph, you are making a distinction between epidemics and pandemics, and everyone who's listening might not understand what that difference is. Can you explain that? Yeah. So thank you for asking about pandemics and epidemics. We'll again, take a step backward. We normally have to start with endemics. Endemics are those diseases that occur in a given society almost for a lifetime like talking of um, malaria in many parts of sub-Saharan Africa. But when we talk of um, epidemics, those are diseases that come as an outbreak in a given situation above the normal. A given country has not, have, uh, has not had such a disease and then it shows up like what happened um, of West Nile virus years ago, I think like in 2000, many, many years ago in Canada. And that was a surprise. But when the disease is a pandemic, that disease is affecting countries worldwide. So in this scenario, COVID-19 is a pandemic. We may think of other diseases that may be, which come as epidemics, you know, in, in countries where we live. I would say uh, opioid is an epidemic. It has come up above the normal here in the U.S., Thanks for that explanation. And yeah, I can see how we might be tempted to only think about these categories as related to infectious disease, but they can also kind of work in other threats to wellness. So that, that's useful to think with. And so you mentioned Ebola, and I know that Josh and I have talked in the past also about HIV AIDS as another recent and emergent virus that people were were treating. And I, I wonder, Josh, if you want to talk a little bit about you know what what we learned from the emergence of the HIV AIDS virus and what are the what are the lessons there? Joseph had an I, I want to go back to Joseph's point about about workplace and here worldwide learning with, with a novel virus. one of the you know key differences of a public health approach and a, a general one is, uh, particularly an infectious disease, would be this surveillance, monitoring, reporting. And that works both at a public 
health level, but also at an individual practitioner. And I know you wanted to point out what I what I did or what I should point out to the listener. So I am a practicing PA. I've been a PA for 20 years. I've practiced in all kinds of settings, both here and, and abroad. Public health really looks at kind of that, that surveillance, that monitoring, that reporting, and then subsequently and importantly, the analysis of that, which subsequently informs actions. And in a novel situation, such as COVID-19 or SARS-CoV and HIV, it's truly novel. We, we, don't, we don't know a whole lot about it. That, doesn't say, that isn't to say that we know nothing about it. We do have a worldwide knowledge about it from, from SARS from 2002, 2003. And there are other coronaviruses maybe people are familiar with that cause human disease, but typically have caused mild diseases such as, as colds and cough-like illnesses. So it is really important to say we, we didn't have a huge basis for knowing, knowing what this was going to, to do exactly in a human vector. And the medical community continues to learn at this time as they fight it. And so I think that, that to some degree that a, a, has been a problem in so much as everybody's like, oh, you changed, your, you changed the, the, the advisories about that. Well, that's because we studied it and, and what we thought was the case wasn't true, such as, you know, the, it's initially um, COVID being felt to be a, a bat vector and only individuals in wet markets, a bat and then pangolin vector, and only individuals coming in contact with that. Well, we quickly learned that that was not the case. People invited to China found that there was even very early on community human to human transmission. There is a difference, of course, between that and say something like, you know, that has an entrenched history like multi-drug resistant TB or malaria been mentioned. And so HIV really is an excellent example. There were initial reports, you know, in the 1980s when I was still a child, this is a disease limited Individuals were getting pre predominantly Caribbean blacks, uh, Haitians, and homosexual men were getting these un very unusual infections and pre-malignancies and malignancies that were rarely seen in any other condition. And both the uh, public health community, but also individual practitioners were writing case reports and saying, here's what I observed in this particular situation. Here's a case report of this. And so that sort of workplace learning certainly helped. And then uh, a surveillance and behavioral risk assessments subsequently were layered on top of that in not a great deal of time. It was discovered there was a blood-borne pathogen. With HIV, of course, there's a timeline that's more contracted. And so there was a, a bit less urgency from that standpoint in that it takes months and years for your immune system to collapse with HIV rather than you you know, you can die in a matter of, of days with COVID. So I think that's number one with, with HIV. Another thing I think that's really important, I think Joseph touched on this, is pretty well actually already, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to tackle it a little bit, is anticipating health inequities. So HIV starts in these kind of mobile, well-connected populations, a lot of them westernized populations, and there are plenty of disparities and, and, and discrimination related to that in the, in the homosexual population. But 
then it quickly spread to poorer people, to countries, to Africa, and then subsequently to younger women and, and to, the, to the marginalized. And I think there's good lessons in that for COVID in so much as that's really what we've, it's not one size fits all. And there are, as, Paul, as the physician Paul Farmer says, there's degrees of suffering in, in populations. There's magnitudes of suffering that are, that are greater in certain populations than others. And I think we've seen this to a great deal with COVID, right? We're seeing, we're seeing preferential deaths, whether you look at Milwaukee, whether you look at New York, whether you look around the world, we're seeing preferential deaths in the poor, we're seeing preferential deaths, particularly in the United States in, in African Americans and in Hispanics, both in a, a attack rate of the disease, but also mortality. And this is belied in Milwaukee's data. So I don't Josh, want to misquote it, but yeah. Can I ask you, so preferential death is another term that people don't really use outside of the health world. Can you sure. explain what that means? Okay, so there's there's a what we would call a disparity. So more more individuals in this in these two different populations, more you know, say say whites versus blacks, or higher socioeconomic class versus lower socioeconomic class, proportional to the amount of the population, there are many more African American deaths, and there are many more infections in Latino and Latina populations than in African American populations than there are in white populations. So the burden of disease is much greater. And Joseph, you know, we've hit this a number of times in this podcast and in other episodes, but I think you might be the perfect person to, to explain a little bit more that when people hear that, right, they hear that the burden of disease or the infection rate is higher in particular communities. There's, again, this real kind of rush to then point a finger of blame and say, well, you know, what is it that these communities are doing wrong, right, where they're getting sick? There's almost this, there's a stigma, right, we would call it as social science. And I, I honestly believe it comes from a place where people are very fearful, and so we want to blame sick people for something they've done wrong, because then in my own mind, it means I'm safe right, that, that I can't be impacted. But yeah. precisely because public health approaches do think about health disparities in terms of social and economic status, can you tell me why, why is it that these particular communities have a disproportionate burden of illness? <laughs> Thank you for that sensitive but important question from Samina. You know, I think George hinted on the, on those differences that occur in our society, where we live, where we play, where we work, the social determinants of health. And those differences, I mean, those determinants affect our differences regardless of the situation, whether it's an event or disease. You know, I'll just use this explanation or this illustration. World Health suggests that when a patient becomes sick of COVID-19, they should use a separate bathroom and a separate room and a separate bedroom. But in making that decision, when we start solving problems in communities, then we need to first ask ourselves, do those families 
have a separate bathroom? Do they have a separate bedroom? So there are those determinants that affect people differently, depending on probably their social economic status. Maybe that's the kind of housing they do have. Uh, that's income they do have. So I would suggest that we should not blame people because there are higher rates of disease in places where they live. Maybe they could be highly affected by the environment or the culture. Culture is not bad. The way people greet. In some places like in Spain and, and France, when COVID-19 was high, I would suspect that probably the way people greet by giving pecs could have been could have been bad, but that was part of the culture. Until when we sensitize, until when we do some health education on what people should do. But other than that, yes, people should be responsible for their well-being, but we should also have that collective responsibility and understanding of who people are and how they live. Thanks for explaining that. I do think it's a really common kind of interpretation or misunderstanding that you know people get sick because they've made bad choices and we don't really think about the the menu of choices and how those menus of choices are so different for so many different people and that's why coordinated public health responses are really important i also wanted to sorry samina for adding on that excuse me i wanted to use the to, to illustrate that quite often we use the word this group of people are careless no, they are actually careful. It's just that situations force them to live the way they live. You know, if they have no uh, additional space, then they will live in that small space. If they don't have transportation to go for testing, then that makes it even harder, you know? I like the, the analogy. There's a public health expert and physician, Kamara Jones, who maybe I can play, play off of what a jo Joseph said who talks about a cliff analogy. And essentially there are, for lack of a better word, there are vulnerable populations in, in all sorts of disorders, infectious diseases and otherwise. And they're closer to the cliff at the beginning, so to speak. The circumstances in which they live puts them closer to danger from the beginning of any threat. And I always like that, that analogy that, that Dr. Jones uses. When we think about, I know it's horrible to try to prognosticate what's happening in the, in the next couple of months or in the year ahead, but I'm going to ask you to do it anyway. What kind of public health interventions are we likely to see coming up? Right? I mean, you've both talked about vaccination. I know that testing is a real hot potato issue and we sort of go one way and the other what is on the horizon that we should be paying attention to? Samina, for any disaster that happens, there are phases. There is an emergency phase in which we have been, you know, and then there's a time when the disaster is in full swing. But after the disaster, there is that rebuilding phase, which I have seen, especially after civil wars, after refugees return to their homes, you are rebuilding uh, a community that has been affected by a bad situation. So in my view, as a public health person, I think we'll continue with um, treating patients who have COVID, we'll test, we shall isolate, we shall 
quarantine, we shall do, we shall continue to do the basics. But I think we'll have a time when there should be a, a rebuilding phase where we are trying to tackle the unintended consequences of some of the solutions that we suggested at the beginning of the pandemic. We know many people may be affected mentally. We know many people are likely to lose jobs and they have lost their jobs. So apart from looking at the, the disease, public health does not only look at health in terms of disease, but we look at the social, physical, mental, and the, phys uh, and the spiritual well-being. So I anticipate that in the future, we'll have to stride backwards to try to rebuild all the aspects of a person, the children personalities. We're not only going to look at the disease itself, but also the consequences that have occurred as a result of the pandemic. Thank you, Joseph. I think that was that was a really good summary. And I think it was your your point of the collateral damage of the pandemic is a good one. I think about, you know, individuals who survive for as a medical practitioner, for instance, but have chronic heart disease because of myocarditis, for instance, which is now recognized, or individuals who have chronic lung damage, or people who, there's many cases now where we've talked about, people have been on ventilators for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. Those individuals are not going to be normal anytime soon. And so I think we do have to prepare and anticipate, as you said, for well-being and prosperity in the, in the long haul with a significant amount of physical and, and mental damage to people's well-being and prepare as a society and with our public health structures to, to deal with that. I'm not an immunologist by any stretch of the imagination, but there are, you know, there have been well-funded efforts to obtain a vaccine. I think we'll likely find one eventually, but there's a lot of barriers and again, disparities with those. So I think that's an important thing. Advances benefit the better off in almost any, any disease, be it infectious or other, uh, otherwise, which further increases inequalities, right? Rich countries, rich populations may seek to prioritize the vaccinations. I mean, I think you've already seen, actually, the CDC has spoken to this a bit about who they're, and many of the things they say are, are, are reasonable, right? Healthcare workers, the very, the people have been identified as, as very vulnerable. But, but saying that and, the, and, and then, you know, counting the vulnerable written larger is a, is a different thing. There's very specific barriers to vaccines as well, such as, you know, there's, we're talking about the, at least two of the vaccines that are furthest along are require two doses, which is a hurdle to get people back into either public health context for mass vaccinations or into clinical settings to do that. And at least two of them require sub-zero refrigeration that many austere environments do not have access to. So I, I think those are important things to think about. I, I do think in terms of testing, we've gone from everybody's jumping on the boat with tests that don't, don't work very well from a, you know, they bounce around a lot of terms about 
sensitivity and specificity and those things. And I don't want to bring those up, but just as well as let's just say how accurate the tests are. Okay. And a lot of people jumped in the market from around the world. And fortunately, I think many of those tests, at least in the United States, have been tamped down now and um, the emergency use authorization. So the tests have gotten better and less expensive. So there's these lateral flow tests, which are really antigen or proteins that the virus is expressing that can now be bound to antibodies or pieces of the immune system in relatively palatable circumstances to obtain that. That is, they can be saliva-based tests, and you're seeing these as Abbott is the biggest developer of those, and the test costs roughly $5. So I think it's really important in this country. I think you'll see this again, distributed perhaps unequally, and that may not just be because of disparities, but that may be the, the individual political climate in states around that. But I do think that they're, that the antigen tests are, because they're, although they're not intended for people to do themselves, they're a lot easier to perform and they report a lot more quickly. I do think that's really important that we, that we do more testing there's been lots of barriers with that, reagents, the quality of the tests and those things. But if we have a reliable test that's cheap and can be administered, we should be using this in a thoughtful way and ramping up the test of asymptomatic people rather than ramping it down. I find myself uh, in these times really appreciating anything that approaches good news. So I'm going to file the news about less invasive and cheaper and more reliable tests under that category of good news. But I also take your point that for this to be effective at the public health level, it will have to be made available and administered. And there will have to also be, you know, those things that you've both pointed out in this conversation, some analysis and aggregating and surveilling and and also caring for people, providing them uh, with the provisions that they need in order to be able to follow through on testing or or isolate um, or survive if they can't work while they're quarantining um, and all those things. So I really appreciate having both of you with me today. I think we'll have to maybe check in in a few months. I suspect that the the public health landscape will have shifted probably seismically by the time we get together again, just with so many things that are emergent. Thank you so much, Dr. Knox and Dr. Bionan Nebier. It's been great to talk to you today. Thank you for listening to this episode of COVID Convos. You can learn more about this podcast and the research being done at Marquette University by visiting the Research and Innovation website at marquette.edu. You can reach the podcast via email at covidconvos at marquette.edu. Music for this episode is Phase 2 by Zylo Zyko.